Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, it's a busy Monday afternoon. We just got over the morning. How's everything in your world today? It's just busy as usual, right? Yeah, but in a good way. Yeah, the right kind of busy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, weekly update. Astros, where are we? Ups and downs and all around. I mean, everything feels pretty good. I mean, usually you play the Rangers to feel good about yourself. I remember you saying Um, that. So, yeah, I got, you know, won the series on that and... Excellent. Everybody looked okay. So, you know, few complaints okay. there. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I want to make sure that Justin Verlander, with the way he's been throwing, like, I'm like, look, I know you want to show everybody how great you are, and you are great. Yeah. But, like, just make sure you have some in the tank for later this year. Mm. Is he coming out hot, just excited to pitch and just trying? And- I, I mean, coming back from Tommy John surgery and all the recovery and everything, but he's like one of the best pitchers in baseball right now. Oh. Like, unstoppable pitching late into games. I mean, it's, I saw him pitch the other night and it was just seeing it in person. You forget how dominant he is. Like there's just something with his command and everything where you're just like, wow, it's different than other pitchers. Wow. But I've never seen him like live. I'm sure it's like, it adds another element to like, wow. Like the wow factor, like, holy cow, this gentleman is like a specimen and just probably like mechanically everything just is, it's like artwork probably. Exactly, yeah. I mean, huh. it's cool if you get on Twitter and see just like overlays of his pitches and everything. Ah, okay. You, you just see like, it looks like the exact same pitch and goes in, you know, two different directions. Oh, that's uh, huge. Stuff like that where it's like the ball goes where he wants it to go. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And so what's like a fastball? Is he 90, like high 95, 90? 95, no. That's the thing is to be that old and be hitting 95. And, yeah. You know, speaking of, Facing Nolan tomorrow night. Yes, I kept seeing there. that on. Okay, so I follow or I listen to a podcast called Locked On Astros, mm-hmm. and I don't listen to all of them, but somehow I'll catch him. And then yesterday I saw they said something. So yeah, what is that? So Facing Nolan is a documentary about Nolan Ryan, but it's you know the story of like what it's like to have to go up against him. Oh, and you know Nolan Ryan is like Justin Verlander's you know idol. He dreams to pitch until he's forty five and. Okay. You know, do all those things. But anyway, so I'm going to go watch that tomorrow night. And it's cool because they were shown it after a couple of games in Arlington, but this is a one night only like across the country. So like, I think everybody who has tickets is going to be like a super Nolan Ryan geek. No way. Yeah. And so this is at the- At the a movie dime? theater. Oh, it's at the theater. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That'll be fun. Pretty psyched about that. Yeah, no kidding. That's really cool, actually. So, but it's only playing for one night? Yeah. I mean, I think eventually it'll get more broadly released, but it was like an independent- No way. You know, thing, ah. so. Well, I'm, I'm anxious to see that. Hopefully it comes out, and I'm sure at some point Netflix or someone will pick it up. But anyway, so on the drilling fluid side of things, for those who listened previously, we had a topic that we talked about displacements, specifically going from OBM to brine for you know multiple different reasons but you know it makes sense to now because we displace to multiple different fluids going from brine to obm and that way we can talk again kind of the things to consider what to look out for 
operationally. Yeah, because there's some things that, you know, on paper, it may seem fairly straightforward, which it is. You take one fluid and displace it out of the well and replace it with another one. But there's things that can happen, good, bad, and ugly. And so we're here to talk about it. Matt, what do you think? I like it. Cool. So Matt, what would be the objective if you were to just kind of high level describe what a brine to OBM displacement is? Well, I mean, effectively, we want to push the brine out with minimum contamination so that we can preserve as much of that precious, precious oil-based mud. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind that you display, there can be a number of different circumstances where you display. So I think we're going to kind of, our intent is to focus on the drilling process. Right. So we've sort of alluded to these situations and the completion operations. I know we've actually talked about it in another episode. We're going to talk about drilling where basically for whatever reason, I want to displace to oil-based mud. I have brine in the hole. What do I do? Mm, well, and then you go from there. So there's obviously risks to everything we do. And when you take a fluid and you have a wellbore that's been exposed to a certain fluid, the rock is behaving in a certain way. The drilling parameters hopefully are pretty stable. You like what you're seeing. But when you displace, now going from a brine to an OBM displacement, depending where you're at, if you're drilling or perhaps you're, there's different scenarios. But overall, Matt, what would be some of the risks associated with displacing from brine? to then going to Obey's mud. Well, kind of tailing off the what you said, there is formation considerations. Now, normally we're more worried about that when we have an oil-based mud and we've got shale inhibition or there's something like that, or, and we're effectively like loosening up the fluid loss. Mm-hmm. Well, here, keep in mind that you've already had brine leak off into the rock, that kind of thing. So your fluid loss may not be as tight down hole as it appears in your high temp. Although I think the risk is relatively low, especially if you're doing a good job with your displacement practices, but that's something to think about. I think really when, you know, when we talk most of the time, we're worried about mainly just whole mud interface, right? It's if this stuff mixes too much, I'm going to ruin Some of my oil-based mud will not be economical to recover. And it means more cost of disposal, more waste, all the things I don't really want to do, especially when I'm trying to start drilling with oil-based mud, probably I have big plans for that mud and right. I want to drill ahead fast. Mm-hmm. It's You don't want to start off on the wrong foot there. No, you don't. I mean, interface can get nasty, especially if, like if you're doing, say, an open hole displacement. I only remember on land doing one and then offshore all the time. And one time, for some odd reason, we were doing it in Pennsylvania. I was a mud engineer. I don't really remember. But Yeah, if you're doing an open hole, having that interface can get pretty nasty. And if you don't have a good plan in place or you have an idea of your strokes and your volumes and really have everything organized with, you know, all the personnel involved, it can just be this like conglomerate mess, you know, for however long you're pumping on it. But one thing, too, I want to add to that is with risk, you know, ECDs, if you're, say, going from a brine to an oil-based mud, depending on the weight you're going to have a difference in ECDs likely. So one thing too is it's not only important, you know, to consider well how much mud may you lose to interface, but you may start all of a sudden seeping down hole. And so it's understanding again, you know, calculating your theoretical strokes back to getting to surface versus your actual. Because yeah, you may lose some mud down hole and you need to have a plan in place for that too. Yeah. I mean, that's a real risk. And, you know, it's interesting that you mention it just because You may have a heavy spacer you use to sweep the hole, but you're going from effectively thin fluid, if we're talking brine or even maybe a thin water-based mud, to something that's thicker, right? And probably heavier. And at the very least, that spacer is, and you have contamination, you'll have some, no matter what, that's going to get thick. Yeah. And so pump pressures do matter. And going back to your point on open hole displacements, 
it's something you got to keep an eye out for. What are your YouTube effects? Uh, you know, and I mean, look, I can't emphasize enough. You're playing on surface as far as where you're going to put this stuff because you don't want to shut down in the middle of pumping. Right. You don't want to have to scratch your head and figure out where you're going to divert. You know, more volume back than what you expected, which shouldn't yes. happen either. But you need to have a plan for every drop of fluid that's passing through all that. Yeah. No. Um, and actually, that it's funny you mean that up. It brings back kind of some dark memories and more so just like panic memories because I remember. Again, we're on land and you go, okay, well, you know, you allocate, you know, X amount of barrels to interface and, you know, yeah, we should have enough tank volume on surface because, yeah, what you don't want to do is ever stop pumping in the middle of a displacement. That's just recipe for things to go sideways and, yeah, it just makes things, things get strung out and then your interface goes from whatever, 20 barrels to God knows what. But, yeah, I remember being calculating and all the open tops were filling up and we still had this gunk coming across and I was biting my nails because of course I was a new guy on that rig. I, <laughs> oh, I, I no. had literally, yeah. So the first day on that rig as a relief, actually it's funny because Lonnie Broussard, I'm pretty sure was the account manager for anyway, one of our customers up in the Northeast. And he was like, oh yeah, you ought to be good with this open hole displacement. Cause I was working for one of our customers that were offshore and I had done a bunch of them. I was like, yeah. So I was like super confident about it. And yeah, I'll never forget. I was like sitting on top of this tank or whatever, and I was like watching everything fill up. And I probably had about 10 barrels of wiggle room. Cool. Like, and I swear it was, it was like, and because again, I didn't want to have to call him. Oh, we had to shut down and this and that. And, you know, I wanted to make a name for myself. And so I somehow managed to calculate it to the T. But in saying that, if you are in a position to do this, Calculate a pretty good amount of excess or have excess capacity just to be safe. And then, you know, communicate with on-site representatives. Say, hey, just in case something happens, maybe we should have an extra open top just in case. Maybe two of them. But yeah, because when you calculate something and what actually comes out could be completely different. So always have a good amount of excess capacity when you're doing an open hole displacement. Unless you've done them time and time again and say that pad, you've done two of them and you're about to do your third one, you probably have a decent idea. But if you haven't done it in a while, make sure you've got it because they can make or break your day. Yeah. Well, and like you said, if you get volumes of trash, for example, that you didn't expect back and you have to divert that into one right? and it takes up a little bit. Remember, if it takes up a little bit of the next tank, that tank is out of service. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there's the question of like manifolds, transfer rates, even if it's through like equalizing valves. I've definitely seen people get real nervous <laughs> about like- so wish we had four inch lines because yeah. they're trying to pump a transfer into one and then pump out to frack tanks. Yes, yes, yes. And the pump wasn't keeping up. And so it was <laughs> filling up faster than get it out. It was just one of those like head scratchers. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like these things do happen. It, it sort of reminds me of those, you know, kind of ads where they're like, download this game and, you know, the cup's filling up water and you're trying to fit like... <laughs> yeah. But it's the real deal, and you can't be the guy that's like, let's have a frack tank for every possible scenario. Like, you can't fill up the site right. with every contingency. So you've got to think on your toes and kind of think through what could happen, knowing that you probably won't fall short, but knowing how you could fall short, and if something happened, where do I go next? Right. You know? Yeah. Volume management and, again, giving yourself a safety margin with regards to tank capacity is super important. Moving on, Matt, what circumstances would put us, you know, into a position where we had to displace from a brine to oil-based mud? So, I mean, I think the main one is 
what we see all the time, right? We've cased and cemented our intermediate. We're ready to go to the production interval and we want to drill with oil-based mud in that production interval. And so, you know, we want it for all its favorable properties, so on and so forth. The cool thing about that is generally you're cased. You can do that displacement while you're drilling out, you know, or very little formation exposed. But then the other circumstance kind of alluding to what you mentioned is doing something, you know, further out in the open hole where the risks are higher. The likelihood of a mess is much higher because, for example, vertical hole displaces pretty well. In the, just think about this like hole cleaning, right? It's much easier to push cuttings upwards than it is to push them sideways. Yes. And similarly, from the whole perspective of it, if you're out in the horizontal, although I'll say, you know, talking to the Canadians, you got to put your toque on and, uh, <laughs> and think about this in meters. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but sometimes they're very nonchalant, like, oh, if you're drilling with brine and you, you reach a torque limit, you just displace to oil-based mud. You're like, oh, right, all this oil-based mud I have sitting around. Right. Except for, as we know, Canada is very cold. They drill on these sites that tend to have very remote, you know, frozen locations mm-hmm. where they have tank farms yes. already out there. The infamous tank farms, yes. Which means they actually could have oil-based mud stored out there for the duration of the drilling campaign, which means they do have it. Right. And they may drill with brine. They may plan on drilling, you know, both. You don't know. But yeah. sometimes they're very nonchalant about like, oh, well, if your torque gets beyond limits of what water-based mud will provide, you just displace oil-based mud. And in the Permian you may just well, you know, show yourself off location. <laughs> like, but, where's the tank farm? Where's the, all the 400 uprights back in Kermit? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is not, you can't pump from Kermit. So yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah. So, but that being said, there are scenarios where it's, we're fighting it. Directional is bad. Something we have to get to TD. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's pull the trigger. It doesn't happen often. Right. But it's not that it's never happened. Right. And so those are higher risk because you are further out. And you're kind of displacing a much larger surface area, including a lot of open hole formation. So that's where some of those risks that aren't that major exist to a higher degree than just drilling out some cement and, you know, pumping away. Yeah, no, that's actually, you bring up a really good point. And really it comes back to communication. But now, you know, with our current environment, you know, there's a lot of discussion about moving towards a water-based mud for economics, whatever the case is. So if all of a sudden you're moving to a pad where, okay, we're going to drill this pad on water-based mud. And if it's not something that you've done very often, it's best to have a contingency plan, perhaps talk to the warehouse. Hey, you know, we're drilling this pad with water-based mud. There is a chance once we get close to TD that I may be calling you to get a system out to replace it. Or who knows, maybe the operator has some excess capacity offsite or perhaps, you know, on a pad nearby, whatever. But that's just, it's worth a conversation with the on-site representatives and the warehouse and your relief. Just say, hey, if, if all of a sudden we get into a position where we need to displace, we can't just all of a sudden sound the alarm and say, oh, now we need all-based mud. No one's aware of it and this, that, and the other. So again, just having that backup plan is super critical. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially let's say we're trying something on a complex pad and you start the first one and you realize, okay, this is not going how we expected. We need oil-based mud. We need to go back to, you know, to the basics. And I think there's going to be more scenarios like this than fewer right now, because I think, you know, we've talked about, you know, the Permian doing more water-based mud on longer laterals, that sort of thing. And it's certainly feasible, but I think 
there's going to be a learning curve of finding out the best wells to do that and the best wells to stick with oil-based mud. And yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be all of one and all of the other. Yeah. We're going to have to get smart about what works and it's going to be like regional, you know, yes. this area seems to handle it and this area doesn't. And just like any other drilling challenge that we talk about out there. Exactly. But all that being said, you start that well and you look around and say, look, you know, this is going to cost us days, especially if we do this across three or four or more wells. And someone says, all right, we're going to do it. Get the oil based mud out here. No time like the present. So you <laughs> right. got to just place on that well with the anticipation that the next few wells, you'll drill your production sections with oil based mud from the start. Right. But something to be aware of. I think there'll be scenarios like that that come up. Yeah. No, most definitely. In fact, yeah, it's ongoing. And so, you know, again, let's assume, you know, Brian, okay, everyone, let's displace. We've got our system out there. You know, if you're, you're, say you're circulating on Brian and you, you know, whatever oil-based mud in the pits, you can't just all of a sudden line up on oil-based mud. I mean, you can, but in practice, it's always good to consider pumping a spacer. Yes. What type, how much, this and that. Matt, how would you, I mean, again, I think it really depends on the scenario. So, you know, it's, it's case by case, but in general, how would you describe a spacer and, and what types can we consider using? So, I mean, most of the time we'll try and use something that's weighted and viscous, right? And so why weight or density provides buoyancy. So if you are in any sort of directional area or whatever, it's going to sit on the low side of the hole. So it won't skip over low spots, for example, or rise to the top as you have some interface. So that is something that's, you know, generally desirable. As far as formulations go, this is more a question I have for you because I think I've heard this done a few different ways and I feel like a lot of people swear by their way and I'm not quite sure anybody's right or anybody's wrong as long as you don't waste a lot of money on product and chemical. Sure. So I'm going to turn the table back to you what do you typically put in in your spacer for this specific application? Well, again, it's you know the famous answer of it depends. But if you're going from a lot of times, also it depends on the company representative and what they prefer. Right. But if it's completely up to me, I mean, I try and match. I try and get the, so the brine, assuming it's clear fluid, well, mm-hmm. any oil-based mud's going to have, you know, some body to it. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, slightly, slightly heavier than the active fluid with some rheology to kind of match what, you know, just having some body to it. So to give an exact formulation, again, I don't want to sit here and write in stone. This is exactly how it goes, but kind of in theory, from my experience, and then granted, keep in mind, I've been out of the field for a while. So it's, you know, I'm kind of going off memory from, you know, years ago, but just, I recall, and even, you know, writing mud programs and stuff like that is just, you know, always be a little thicker and a little heavier than what the active fluid is mm-hmm. to me is something that's worked. And to be quite honest, I've been in positions where we've displaced and because the displacement fluid is naturally going to be heavier and thicker, I've had company representatives say, don't worry about it. You know, we'll be fine because the active fluid is going to be enough to push it out. So it, it kind of depends. Yeah. I mean, so the interesting thing is you create your sort of sludge ball granite yeah. in a cementing application or thing where we're afraid of, we don't want to leave any crap behind we'll put in a solvent surfactant package, you know, make sure compatibility, that sort of thing. Yeah. If you show up and try to do that here, you'll be able to find your way off location. But so, you know, that's sort of the interesting thing is it's going to get real thick anyways if you just pump on it. However, I agree with you. I think getting something a little bit of body so that you don't have this turbulent brine, you know, mixing with the oil-based mud. But honestly, like 
the risk is fairly low when mm -hmm. it's just an intermediate transition, right? Like it's right. pretty darn low. You're mostly vertical. You're generally inside casing. There's just not a lot of places for things to go wrong per se. So yeah, a little bit of weight, put a little bit of xanthan. It's going to cross-link like crazy, the part that mixes with the oil-based mud. But like, you know, the other challenge is some folks will go the other way and recommend like really heavy pills. And I think that's dangerous. Sure. Just as you get further out, I understand the recommendation, especially the volume size to limit that interface. But I think you can also introduce a lot of unnecessary risk to save a little bit of money on a little bit of interface. Yeah, I agree with you there. And again, there's so many ways to do it. So it's whether what you're familiar with, the account manager, perhaps the on-site representative. Again, communicate with the office, communicate with people on site to make sure everyone's on the same page. Because it's marginal, but at the end of the day, some people are like, no, this is how we've done it and it works every time. Yeah, the again. ones that swear by it is more like, you know, I think everybody's got their simple formula and probably there's way more than one right way to do it. Sure. I've been sort of intrigued because I've seen so many different ones where I'm like, I don't know if I found a, necessarily a wrong way per se, other than a little thicker and a little heavier, which I think most of us can get on board with. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it simple. You don't have to over-engineer a spacer. <laughs> That's one thing too is, it's, again, keep it simple and yeah, pump on it. And the biggest thing is like, don't shut down. Yes. Never stop pumping. Right. That's going to be sort of give you the best chance of success, regardless of you know what fancy spacer you have is don't stop, which kind of brings us to our next point. Matt, what are some displacement best practices that, you know, from a rig perspective, some of which we don't have control over, but just in general. I mean, I think one of the biggest ones is pipe movement. So rotate and reciprocate while you're pumping. Mm -hmm. And just think about this like hole cleaning, right? You want to avoid low spots. You want to make sure that the fluid contacts everything. And so pipe movement really matters. It can make yeah. a huge difference on these things. So, you know, spacer, rotate, reciprocate, good pump rates, don't stop pumping, those are all things that, you know, make for a good displacement under most circumstances, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, it's like for us, we don't have control over, I mean, I've had company reps say, well, how fast should we pump on it? And, you know, a lot of times smaller outfits, you know, they lean on mud engineers and they lean on us, hey, what should we do here? But, you know, again, like depending on who you work for, some, they may have set standards in place. Like when you do this or, you know, this operation, here's what we do. And, and you kind of are on the sidelines and other than providing a suggestion on the spacer. But yeah, that's, again, from what I recall, it's, you know, don't stop pumping, spacer, reciprocate your pipe, you know, and then, you know, rotating it at a slow rate, you know, kind of like when you go to cement, right? If you notice before they stop, whenever they're pumping, they're all, you know, slowly lifting it up, going down. So again, pipe movement's critical. And then, you know, two is, you know, once you've got your fluid moving, okay, then the timer's on, or most of the time you're looking at your strokes because you always want to know when you should expect that spacer to come back. And mm -hmm. so depending on how, where you're at in the well, sometimes it could, you know, depending on what your bottom up is or whatever, whatever you've calculated, be at the shakers. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the tried and true 101. Like if you're managing, you're displacing or cementing, be at the shakers. So Matt, why would you want to be at the shakers? Well, probably the most basic reason is to see what's coming back. <laughs> right. And it's kind of interesting because it's sort of like, the anticipation of like, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there. Yeah. And what do I see? And it's usually pretty obvious when you go from brine, for example, to oil-based mud, like quite apparent. Between yeah. other fluid swaps, it might be a little murkier, but normally you're going to have some nasty interface that you're going to want to see and make sure you divert. 
Right. And then the real reason you want to be there is to make sure you know what to do on what you want to keep. Yes. Because you've managed all your pits appropriately, and now you want to go back to a circulating system of oil-based mud. And so you're going to hang out by that flow line. And we were talking about this before we started. Like, usually electrical stability is something you'll measure and kind of, once you get above 150 volts, I think we had to do it like three times when I worked offshore. It was like three consecutive 150 volts, which yeah. once you were over 150 volts, it was oil-based mud anyways, so like three, one, whatever. Yeah. And then you can basically, you know, stop diverting, shut her down, you're good to go on your displacement. Right. Yeah. And then just again, to kind of reiterate that, it's you're waiting there once you see you know, the fluids start to change properties. And by that, it's like, you again, start seeing thick, okay. And especially if you're going from a brine to an oil-based mud, you're going to start seeing a pretty good color change. It may go to like, you know, your brine to then like a kind of like a chocolatey, caramelly kind of nasty. And then at that point, yeah, once you start seeing a little bit more oil-based, you know, dipping your ES meter in there. And again, it could be 150, it could be 200, it could be, I mean, there's no set number, but ultimately it's, again, the trend. Okay. It's trending upward. We're starting to get more oil-based mud. At that point, then you kind of have to make a, you know, an experienced judgment call as to when do you stop diverting? Because you don't want to wait. I mean, you can to like it to be perfect oil-based mud, but the reality is if you've got say a 1500 barrel circulating system and you may have 15 barrels of interface, well, you know, again, you're not going to sit there and run the numbers, but you can afford to assume some of that interface and just kind of treat it a little bit, or you may not even notice it. But if you, yeah, because then all of a sudden, if you wait for it to be perfect, then you may get someone say, well, why did you dump all that good oil base mud in there? It's like, well, because the ES was only at 150. It's like, well, yeah, but it looks good. And then you get in this kind of interesting debate. Yeah. It's that classic. I don't want to have to take in enough interface that I've spent a bunch of money treating it. I also don't want to be dumping whole mud right. because that looks really bad. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like, so, you know how much that costs, right? Especially right now. Yeah. So, so yes, it's something everybody sort of understands and you can take the meter out there. Of course, we can all argue about what a good number is, but I feel like most people land around 150 and yeah. something in that neighborhood. And ultimately it's probably going to be up to the drilling consultant on the rig to say, okay, I'm good with that. But whatever properties you agree on and then- we find ourselves in a situation where, okay, we've got mostly oil-based mud in our pits, maybe a, a little bit of interface because it wasn't perfectly clean oil-based mud. So sure. you might want to get that into shape. Like you said, it, it may be you just blend all this stuff back because your whole circulating system is large enough that you're not going to miss it. But the other thing is, especially when you're out in those longer laterals, keep in mind that like some of the products like oil wetting agents could get consumed at a higher rate because- you're displacing and moving all this stuff over. And so you may just want to kind of keep an eye on your overall properties like you would anyways, but get a good mud check in and understand that the further out you are when you do this displacement, the more surface area, the more potential for contamination and all that kind of thing, the more treatment you may need to get your system where you want it to be within program. Yeah. And I think too, that's where, again, communicating and reporting detailed reporting is critical because you're going to have a typical daily treatment, but you're also likely going to treat some of the contamination that you're gaining or that you're taking on. And so just kind of something that I got in practice of is, well, first I would allow it to make a few circulations. I wouldn't, as soon as you start getting the oil-based mud backs, do a check and then make a treatment based off that. I always 
encourage the company representatives to just relax, you know, let us do two, three, even maybe four full circulations just for, to let everything blend, then get a good check, then treat it. Because if you get too ahead of yourself and you're, you take a sample and all of a sudden it's just, you know, it could be just your suction pit that's contaminated, but the rest of the system's not bad. And then all of a sudden you make this juicy treatment and spend 16 grand. And then next thing you know, you've over-treated. So it's always, you know, just everyone's like, oh, we got to get mud in shape. Your hole's not going to fall apart. Just be patient, few circulations, do a check, okay. And then whatever excess you're treating, let's say you're, you know, just whatever you're going to spend that day, there's going to be a bit of an excess. Perhaps write that down in your notes, add it in an extra X amount of this, X amount of that to, you know, for due to contamination from the displacement. Then that way there's no, you know, like, holy cow, you guys displaced and all of a sudden you spent a bunch of money. Well, yeah, because, you know, we took on 10 barrels or 15, 20, whatever. Again, just is just being mindful and then communicating before you send out a report that you may have had to spend a little more money because you took on a little bit of water, whatever. So be aware. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think the theme that we've sort of kicked around here throughout this whole thing has been communication throughout, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we sort of agree there's some general best practices, but as far as standards and qualification criteria, you basically got to make sure everybody's on board with what those are. Managing your pits, you got to make sure everybody's on board with that. And especially your Derrickhand, like they could be the first person to tell you, hey, I know you think you're smart, but this could be a really bad idea. Or they'd say, look, I've done a hundred of these. Let me tell you the way I like to do it. Yes. And you can say, you know what? That sounds really good. Let's go with your plan. I'm going to write it down. You you know, let's have each other's back. You can have some cookies later from the trailer. <laughs> yeah. Again, because a lot of times if you, you know, say you go to a new rig and you don't quite understand, you have a fairly good understanding of their pit system, but there may be some little tricks of the trades at the Derrickhan who's been there on that rig or whoever has been there to say, hey, well, what if we do this and divert this or whatever? Again, communicate with the rig, have a plan in place. I always like to put a detailed displacement procedure together, pass it out to the rig, have a yes. pre-job sort of ops meeting, talk to strokes, talk to the driller. Hey, I've calculated this many strokes. What did you get? And really outline that because I've been on both sides. I've been on, hey, we're just going to displace. All of a sudden they get going. And then you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, making sure everyone knows where to set up shop because you want to be at the shakers and then you want to, you know, your Derek hand perhaps on the pits and then someone at the frack tank. And okay, when I, you know, throw my arm up or, you know, do the baseball sign across my chest down the leg and elbow, that means turn this pump on. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. all these things that are going on that you want to make sure everyone's on the same page. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's interesting, like, especially when you don't have line of sight all the time and, you know, you write all this stuff down and it's like, I've made this as obvious as possible, but that is not obvious enough. And so I'm going to be here during this. I'm going to be here during this. And, you know, those hand signal, like, this is confirmation. I can't get to you, but this confirmation, <laughs> everything's going okay, is this hand wave. Yeah. And if I start picking my nose, that's something else. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. those kinds of things. I mean, over-communication almost. I think everybody appreciates it. They know how important it is. Yeah. I've never really gotten a ton of resistance working with a driller and all that. Like everybody knows what has to be done. Yeah. And so over communication and then from there documenting, okay, this is what we saw. Yeah. And you may find even, you know, great things for recaps and lessons learned is, hey, I know we tried it this way, but like on this particular rig, there's, we may actually be able to do this mm -hmm. or even better yet, you know, you make a recommendation on the rig move. Could we change out this valve or could we yeah you know do something like that so mm -hmm. no and that too is like i said even the 
putting together a displacement procedure and you know if the account manager's you know not tied up you know that day can at least kind of give it a review and two if because on the mud program a lot of times we'll have a basic displacement procedure but more so like mix this chemical and kind of like a formulation but operationally every rig kind of does it different so it's good to be able to file that because if you had a jam up displacement and then your relief comes or let's say, you know, whatever happens and the account manager knows, oh, yeah, we did this open hole displacement on this rig before. Here I have the displacement procedure, sends it to the mud engineer, and then you can kind of at least learn from previous experiences to help perhaps a derrick. Because right now, you know, how busy it is, people are moving around. You got a driller one day and next thing you know, you've got a roughneck that's a driller and a derrick hand moving. The- so it's, you know, again, yeah. like filing good SOPs is very important or and you can at least keep it in the trailer house too for whoever comes down the pipeline but anyway yeah everyone gets the point there <laughs> so. yeah i mean and going back to the mud program i think the distinction is the mud program can't tell you how many strokes because you right. won't have your exact volume right like and even until you're at the depth you know you're going to displace you can't offer that up so a lot of this stuff have your spreadsheets ready have everything you know have your template ready to go and it will make a big difference Cool. Well, that's about it for me, Matt. I think we've certainly covered quite a bit of ground. And if anyone out there has any thoughts, maybe some, you know, good horror stories, which are never good. But sometimes when you look back, you think, wow, that was a nightmare. And I've been, like I said, been close, but never ran into any train wrecks. But if anyone has any thoughts, questions, if they want us to elaborate or cover anything in more detail, we'd be happy to do so. You can hit us up on LinkedIn or if you want to send an email at the podcast at asfluids.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you could just spread the good word, you know, we feel like there's a lot of good information that we cover, share it with your relief or anyone interested in drilling fluids. And with that said, Matt, any other closing last words? Nothing for me. Awesome. Well, until next time, everyone be safe. Take care for now. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.